Welcome everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McCurr. You can find more information about the podcast at twoguystothedarktowercame.com. You can also email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. In this episode, we'll cover book seven of The Dark Tower, The Dark Tower, part two, chapters nine through twelve. Let's start the show. We begin this section with Roland and Jake having a conversation about Stephen King, Mordred, and the coming battle. The crew from Devar Toy show up, and Shimi has a warning about the beam. The Cotet determines their next step must be to save the Breakers, and thus the beam. And so they plan an assault on the town. The attack on Algul Ciento goes exactly to plan, as the ambush that Roland devises is perfect in every way, and saves the beam. Then, as the Cotet is celebrating, a dying Pimley fatally shoots Eddie. We end this section with Susanna burying her husband, and Roland and Jake teleporting back to Keystone Earth to save Stephen King. This was quite the section of the Dark Tower, wasn't it? Yeah, so I think I had been complaining a little bit about how there has been a lot of stuff happening in the first part of this book but not really much happening. It's sort of spinning of wheels. We get a lot of information and a lot of characters, but really no action. And that all went away in this section. That is for sure. Yeah. Greetings, constant listeners. Want to support the show? Check out our Patreon page to learn how you can access exclusive content. We've set up three patron levels. Apprentice, Gunslinger, and Cotet. Each level provides rewards as a thank you from us to you. Find out more information at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. Thanks again for being a loyal listener. I mean, we might as well just jump right into it. Let's talk about Eddie's death. Yeah, Eddie dies. I'm kind of sad. So on the one hand... This is a shock to the system. Eddie is, other than Roland, the character we've known the longest in this series. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, we've been given foreshadowing for books now that things weren't going to end well for the entire quartet, and that someone or someones were probably going to die. Eddie is really the first major character, other than Father Callahan, to, to meet the fate. Like, he's the core member of the Cotet, and he is felled by Pimley's pot shot as Pimley's dying, and he's going to die, and he dies in a really horrible fashion as he is shot through the eye and has a hole in his head and lingers on for hours and hours after that shot. Yeah, it almost seems, well, let's just say it seems unlikely that somebody with a being shot in the head the way Eddie was would live more than seconds, but mm. he does. Yep. And I, I think King uses that to good effect in terms of turning Eddie in his dying moments into some, uh, into a kind of clairvoyant, into a kind of medium. When Eddie was killed, it made me ask the question, why kill Eddie? If King decided, I'm going to kill one of the members of the quartet, why did he pick Eddie to be that character? Mm. You know, why not Roland? Why not Jake? Why not Susanna? Why not Oi? 
I think my initial response to my own question is, I think Eddie is in some ways the most expendable and not that he's the least useful part of the team, but as a character as a, and as a, an archetype, he's a white male. He is an adult. He has had a complete story arc from a character perspective or a character arc. So I, I think that a lot of these things story-wise make him more expendable than the other members of the content. Not only expendable, because I like everything you just said, and that is all true, but also potentially the most emotionally impactful of the deaths, like beyond Roland. But Roland, in some ways, has plot armor, I believe, at this point in the story. Uh, It doesn't seem like King's going to kill him 400 pages before the end. So Roland's out of the picture. But Eddie is really, in some ways, the glue that holds the whole quartet together. He's similar to Roland. They have a very push-me-pull-me type of relationship. You know, they respect each other, but they drive each other nuts. Mm -hmm. Eddie and Suzanne obviously have a close, loving, familial relationship, and he is like a big brother to Jake. It is emotionally impactful, potentially more than anyone else, because, as I said, Roland's not going to die. Jake has already been killed twice now, and... We're not as close to Susanna as we are to Eddie. As I said, Eddie's been around us from the beginning and really in some ways is almost a stand-in for King and the reader. Yeah, from a personality perspective, right? And the the well to which King always uh, goes to for pop culture references and literary references and things like that. Yep. I think there's two parts to your question. Why, Eddie? And I think we've gone through that. But, you know, why kill anybody at this point? And I think it's been made clear that there needs to be sacrifices, especially during a big battle. And there had not been any real sacrifices up to that point. And it seemed like they were almost superheroes and King needed to take them down a notch and again, show that the stakes were are extremely high here. I think that that is a valid argument and certainly a good reason to kill one of these characters but i think that the way king chose to do it was let's just say I, i'm not a fan yes taking them down a notch from being superheroes or from being like you know superhuman in their abilities to carry out in an ambush like they did completely cleanly and they did that they they carried out their plan with zero loss of gunslinger life mm-hmm. and all of the key players in the in El Gociento are also just fine except for Shimi who you know has a problem with his foot now yes this is I think similar and, and related to the death of flag you know, earlier in the book mm. we needed to for I, I think for a really satisfactory ending to flag we needed to see flag be confronted by Roland directly and I think that by denying us that, King let us down a little bit. You know, he may have been thinking, what's the worst way to kill somebody? I know, have Mordred kill him and eat him alive, right? That's a pretty bad way to go, it seems. But having Flag confront Roland one final time and not be able to outsmart him, not be able to slither away and finally lose in a definitive manner, I think would have been much more satisfying story-wise. Now, we could have had the whole Algociento rescue mission and everybody walks away, you know, they compose for that cheesy 
drawing where they're all like hugging on top of the three-wheeler and then walk away whole and still a cotet. And then the sacrifices come later. The sacrifices come with their final steps on the journey to the tower. That's, I think, would have been a, a more meaningful way to make it, to show us that sacrifice. If he needed to kill Eddie to remind us and to remind the characters that they're not impervious, do it in a, I don't know, maybe a more organic way. Don't have like a guy who was shot in the head himself suddenly have enough strength in his body and still enough of his own thoughts left that he wants to get some sort of revenge for losing this fight and to take a pot shot at any one of the people who attacked him and that his aim is true and, and all this stuff. It was just like tacked on. It's like, all right, battle happens, battle successful. Everybody's like, great job, gang. And then, oh, right when you thought he was dead, Pimley Prentice comes back for one last gunshot. It just felt awkward and tacked on. I sometimes have respect when an author undercuts expectations and doesn't show that everything has to be a dramatic, glorious death. That's not always how death happens. Mm -hmm. Sometimes death is random. Sometimes death is because you get an infection on your foot and not a brain hemorrhage. And sometimes the battle's over and the war's still going on and you get picked off at the last minute. So I don't think I had quite as much of a problem with it. And maybe that's because I'm a cold-hearted person inside. And <laughs> Eddie's death did not affect me in the same way as it potentially affected you. I mean, what, what, were your, what are your thoughts, though, on losing Eddie at this point in the story? Like you said, Eddie is the character we've known longest besides Roland himself. I guess you could maybe debate whether or not we've known Jake longer. We met him first. But but because of that, Eddie has been a constant companion through these books for a long, long time for us. And to lose him is a blow. It, it's kind of like when I got to the end of It. I had been spending time with these characters for a thousand pages. and regardless of how their stories concluded, it was just that the fact that the book was over that made me sad. These characters are done. They're not in the story anymore because the story's over. I think a big part of that is just how I feel about Eddie. Eddie's not in the story anymore. His story's over. I, I wish that he could be there for whatever comes next. I, I mean, we're in the last book and we're about to start the second half of it, right? Yep. Eddie made it almost to the end. That's kind of frustrating too. And I think maybe that's part of it. I guess you're looking at it from the perspective of a good story structure and how do you keep the plot alive? How do you keep the drama going? I'm speaking from the perspective of a fan of the characters and I want them to just keep going and keep being successful, keep being happy and win the day at the end. And I know that they won't. I know that they can't. That's not what a good, satisfying story should be. I think that's part of what makes it heartbreaking to lose Eddie as a character or a character like Eddie because you wanted all those things, or at least I did, and now they aren't going to happen. This reminds me of a similar discussion you and I had about a character in Game of Thrones who I won't mention in case anybody hasn't read the books or seen the show. And I haven't read the books you had, so you knew what was going to happen. 
And I had been speculating and speculating and speculating, and you wouldn't tell me one way or the other. And about a half an hour before this character died, and I was sure that the character wasn't died, I thought, you know what? It probably makes more sense from a story perspective for this character to die than to succeed and live. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, that's what happened. And I realize now that from a story structure, it is better that that character died. And I wonder from a story structure if it's better that Eddie dies here. And maybe that'll be something we look back on at the end of the story and, and look on and that not every character gets what they want. I mean, Callahan didn't get what he wants. No. And Eddie's not getting what he wants. And it seems like Susanna's not getting what she wants, even though there's this hint that, you know, she's willing to keep going through the tower and hates it, but she's she wants to do it. I mean, she's losing her husband. So, And that brings me to another point, Jay. I was very upset that Eddie's death and the lingering of his death and the aftermath of his death was mostly told through Jake's eyes, somewhat told through Roland's eyes, and barely shown through Susanna's eyes at all. Susanna's the closest character to Eddie. They're married. She's the one who has the greatest loss here, I think, the greatest amount of grief. And once again, she seems to be shunted to the side and her thoughts aren't primary on the page. It was a little disappointing to me that we continue in this series of books to not get Susanna's perspective. I agree. This would have been a wonderful opportunity for King to give us Susanna's perspective, put us in her mind as she is dealing with the agony of the loss of her husband and of her ca-mate. And instead, like you said, we get it from the perspective of the men around her mm -hmm. and how fortunate it is for us that Jake has a bit of telepathy. So he, he can say with certainty what Susanna feels and what is going through her mind for us, for her. And wouldn't it have been easier, simpler, cleaner, and more respectful to the character to let Susanna you know, fill the page with her thoughts? Yeah. I'm frustrated by it too. Did King do this because he just didn't want to deal with it? Did King do this because it would have been too hard or too dark or too sad to just spend time figuring out what words to write down to represent this. I know he has the skill to do it, but for some reason he keeps dodging this. Yeah. I think that if we had shuffled this deck so that it was Roland over a dying Jake or something like that, or Jake over a dying boy, Susanna wouldn't have said, hmm, isn't that interesting that Jake's sad? And then it's like, chapter after chapter of uh, Susanna's <laughs> perspective all of a sudden. like I don't think he would have done that. I, I, I think King would have just put it in Jake's perspective or in Roland's perspective. For some reason, he keeps, he keeps uh, dodging that Susanna time. And this, this is one time where he definitely should not have avoided it. Yep. So the key piece of information you hinted at a little bit earlier is Eddie becoming a little bit of a medium in his last moments mm -hmm. before he dies and it seems as if the key piece of information is him whispering to jake to protect roland from dandelo and that's a new word on the page for us i don't know if it's a person place or thing J jake doesn't know and he starts to ask around and gets no answers and 
No one really knows what that means, but I'm sure that that will be important in the pages to come. Yeah, and then beyond that, Eddie has a really nice echo to his Rooms of Ruin line that he first said in book three when he had his ear to the door at Shardik's lair and he found that door to to some machinery that they couldn't access. But he put his ear to that door and he started saying these words. And so he repeated a very slightly modified version. Maybe this was more of it, but he says, all is forgotten in the stone halls of the dead. These are the rooms of ruin where spiders spin and the circuits fall quiet one by one. For some reason, the all is forgotten struck a chord with me this time in a way that it hadn't before. Mm. I chalk that up to the fact that he's dying and that that's like a kind of forgetting. Everything that he has experienced, learned, and known in his life is about to stop. Therefore, he's forgetting. And he's forgetting his life experience because he's at his, the moment of his death. And in a way, I guess that death parallels the world moving on mm. and the rooms of ruin. And of course, you get a spider reference, which makes a lot more sense now that we've been introduced to Mordred than it would have in book three. Right. So prior to the battle, Jake and Roland are having a palaver outside of the cave. And using his telepathy, Jake realizes that Roland is angry. He's he's worried about the battle ahead, but he's calm on that front, but he seems to be angry. And when he delves a little bit further, Roland admits that he's very angry at Stephen King. He calls King lazy and that he tells tales because he's afraid of life and that King is afraid, tired, and lazy and that they wouldn't be in this situation if it wasn't for King if he hadn't gotten off his ass and written these books the way he was supposed to. Um, but instead, he was avoiding his his duty towards Ka, I guess. And so Roland gets really upset about this. And to some extent, that's King sort of talking to his readers, perhaps, that, hey, there were reasons I didn't write this book as quick as I did. I'm now here doing it. So it's that sort of metafictional angle. One thing I would not call King is lazy, I don't think, based on the amount of books he put out. But in Roland's view, he's lazy because he didn't focus on the right thing. Yeah. So if we take that sort of essence and then bring it back into the story, we've talked a little bit about this, but is King afraid, tired, and lazy when it comes to this part of the book in the way that he deals with Eddie's death? I think so. Or I should say, I think so. <laughs> I think so? I think so. In my opinion, King did not have the courage to kill Eddie in a way that was quote-unquote worth it. That's where I talked about earlier that it felt tacked on. Hmm. You made a, a very compelling argument about how not everybody needs to die in a blaze of glory. But I think that Eddie could have died in a not blaze of glory, but just have made it happen during the battle itself. You know, have Pimley get off that one shot before they all slap each other on the backs and yell, yay, we did it, right? Yep. Or take advantage of some of that foreshadowing effort that he put into the story earlier. And with like Pimley having this eight shot peacemaker revolver. And make it that the reason why he's able to kill Eddie is because he has eight shots, but everybody assumed it was six shots. So they're like, he's empty. It's okay. And then 
bang, bang, and he shoots Eddie. Yep. Do something creative with the materials at hand. It, I feel like King just, he spent an inordinate amount of time talking about that gun, the eight-shot Peacemaker. Yep. So much time, and it didn't matter. That could have been any gun that had been picked up off the ground, and it was just one shot and done. That's why I feel like the way that Eddie died and the person who killed him and the weapon used were all just like the bare minimum of effort. So, uh, yes, <laughs> I think I think that, that this is an example of afraid, tired, and lazy, or, or at least one, one or more of those. Yeah, and so this isn't the only place either. So there is a lot of setup about how when Shimi uses his teleportation power, it seems to be weakening him and causing pinpoint hemorrhages in his brain. Like mm-hmm. he faints when he comes to the cave. He has nosebleeds and his eyes are, are going red. And Dinky says, yeah, this is what Ted thinks. And he might only have four, maybe three, maybe two, maybe one more time before he won't be able to do this, that he's going to just drop dead. And instead, and Shimi hasn't died yet, but King has made it clear Shimi is going to die because of the wound on his foot that nobody noticed. He steps on a piece of glass after in the middle of the battle and it's going to be infected and he's going to die. It's like, again, King undercutting himself with like setup, 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 setup. That's not how he's going to die. Yeah. Now that could, I guess the, the positive spin you could put on that is the subverting expectations thing. Yep. But that also kind of, to me, goes towards like the afraid part. It's like, King is reluctant to go with the conviction of having Shimi in one last noble go to use his special mental powers to help the cause. Yeah. That that is when he dies. Goes out fighting. And instead it's like, yeah, well, you know, sometimes it's just this other thing. So I'll tell you the one that bothers me the most. And that is in the last words that Eddie has with each of the characters. He tells Susanna, he's going to meet her in the clearing. He tells Jake to watch out for Dandelo and protect Roland from that. And he whispers to Roland how happy he was he got a second chance. And then he calls Roland father. And this really did not ring true for me at all. So hmm. we had a fairly emotional moment when the Cotet was reunited and Jake was able to call Roland father and they hugged and embraced. And that was a key point. And throughout this series, Roland has been set up as a father figure for Jake. Jake had a father who was distant and that he didn't relate to and that was not really there for him, neither one of his parents. And so Jake was missing this person in his life and Roland seemed to fulfill it. With Eddie, we never seem to get that throughout the series. I realize that Roland is older than him and the leader of the quartet, but I've always got more of a sense that they had a brotherly relationship, much like Eddie had with his brother Henry, who has been an important part of the series, even though he's not been alive for all of it, but just the conversations that mm-hmm. Eddie had with Henry, the backstory with Henry. We don't get any backstory with Eddie and his father or know anything about him at all, but we do get it with Henry. And the relationship that Eddie seemed to have with Roland is similar to the one he seemed to have with his, with his brother. It's an older guy who doesn't quite take him seriously all the time, pushes him into things he might not necessarily want to do, etc. And so in this last moment when Eddie calls Roland father, it did seem like an incongruous leap for me that, really? That's 
the relationship you have and that's supposed to make me emotional i i guess i just didn't see it yeah i largely agree with everything you just said i think that the emotional crescendo for me in that moment was when eddie thanked roland for the second chance because that is truly what roland provided to eddie yep the second chance came with a really long string attached which was i'm gonna put you on a never-ending level of danger quest kind of thing and you're probably gonna die before <laughs> we we reach our goal and oh by the way i guess you you, you are dying uh, um, but yeah the the father thing if i had to find a way to to explain it it would just be simply that that was the best or perhaps only term that eddie could use in their official relationship if you will as din and yeah, cathead vocabulary is to call him father. To say anything else would have just seemed awkward or or just incorrect. But I agree that the story did not organically build to a father son relationship here. Right, especially since Eddie has been compared throughout to Cuthbert. Mm-hmm. You know, Roland mentions many many times about how much Eddie reminds him of Cuthbert and. I would not characterize their relationship as father to son. Obviously, Roland is the leader and on a different level than Cuthbert, but it would seem odd if Cuthbert in his laughing, dying breath would say, goodbye, father. Like, Yeah, to the point where, didn't somebody like basically say he, he's the reincarnation, Cuthbert? Basically, yeah. One last item that I, I think I'll, I'll throw into this section about King being afraid, tired, and lazy is that when Susanna says goodbye to Roland and Jake as they are about to jump through this portal and try to save King. She kind of switches to a little bit of her dead a walker patois and tells Roland to tell King to get off his ass. Yep. Write those damn books because if it costs me my husband, he better write these books. Part of what she said was my favorite part of her patois there because I'm almost always entertained by dead a walker's choice of vocabulary where she says something to the effect of, tell him to write like he's out running gangrene of the dick. <laughs> and I kind of found myself wondering, did King rush through finishing these three books and where the problems shine through, where the cracks appear, is that a result of writing as though he were trying to outrun gangrene of the dick? I got hit by a truck. I almost died. I have a Second chance on my life right now. I'm just going to write these damn books. I don't really care anymore. Is that what's what's going on? Like, I, I don't think he didn't care, but I wonder if he made choices or didn't pay attention to certain details or didn't do enough of the heavy lifting like he might have otherwise. Yeah. If 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 he took seven years between books instead. Or just a couple. Yeah, no, I think it's fair. And we shouldn't get too hard on King. I mean, all of this stuff is very well written. I think that the battle itself was done well. Like, I had a very good sense of how it was all going down. There is some emotion to Eddie dying. And, it, you know, I do think it's going to have an impact on the story and will continue, obviously, in the rest of the story. So I, I don't want to be too down on King. It's just that, again, like you and I have said, we're going to point out things that don't seem to quite work as well as we think that they maybe could have in another way. And it's not all down in this section, right? No. Sure, Eddie died. 
But the beam says thank you. Yeah. They've saved the beam. Everything's good. Beam says thank you. Beam says it's not too late. So it's very interesting because the beam is actually talking through Shimi and saying thank you and saying it's not too late and I'll heal. And we also get this personification of the beam through the dreams that each of the members of the Kotet have, where they picture this little boy who's hurt and bloodied. And they all realize that, oh, yeah, that's the beam. And that's why we have to save the breakers and the beam before we go rescue King, that that's the more important piece because the beam is about to break. Mm-hmm. And I thought that that was an interesting choice to make the beam personified. And it made me wonder, are there six different personifications of the beam? If this beam can heal, can the other beams heal and come back in some way? Like, how does that all work? I, you know, maybe it's interesting. Yeah. Or why is the beam personified by a boy who seems to resemble Jake, mm. as opposed to one of the guardian images that defend the beam. Like a bear or something, right? Yeah. They are the beam's guardians. So have a bear come to the dream and talk to Susanna and say, oh, they've bloodied me up. And then the beam bear says, thank you. Shardik says, thank you. That's an interesting thought to explore. And it also made me wonder, is Shimi a medium for the beam or is this just because he's a breaker Hmm. is the beam itself the source of shimi's power he seems to have a unique connection to the beam that the other breakers don't not even ted yeah because if the beam wanted to save itself it would seem like i could have gone into all their minds and told them don't kill me i'm just a little boy yeah don't rip my eye out and leave it hanging from uh my optic nerve on the side of my face. Well, it does the job if Shimi is in fact a medium. And it seems like it might be because it's all tied up with his teleportation in the cave and they all had the dream the night before. And that's what makes them have the decision. It, it works. I like the idea that all things serve the beam is something that's been said throughout this and that perhaps Shimi has a special place in being that medium or that conduit between the beam and the others. Mm-hmm. I wonder if that will play out or not as we go further. They were successful. Mm -hmm. Sure, it took Eddie's death, but they did save the beam. Much to the Breaker's dismay, which was a nice little piece when Roland decides not to kill them all, Yeah, which is nice of Roland. He doesn't even kill all the low men that they find. There's a few guards that survived the battle, and he lets them go out into the wilderness. And he tells the Breakers that they can search for redemption, and they're very upset with him because they took away what, what they wanted. Like, they felt a purpose in breaking. And they said, it, he he is a Ted who says it's similar to Fahrenheit 451. Yes. It was good to burn the books and it was good to break the beam. And that's been taken away from them, even though that, you know, they have enough food to survive for the rest of their lives and they could go somewhere and try to lead a life and be forgiven. But Roland holds back from the killing that he really, really wants to do. And he's just waiting for one of them to say one more word and then it'll be done. And Ted says... Oh, wow, Roland, I, I guess I didn't do a very good job of explaining to you that you shouldn't blame them for what they've done. And he said, no, no, you did an excellent job of explaining it. That's why they're still alive. Yep. <laughs> well, it's been a fairly down episode with the death of Eddie and also I'm sure we can get some fun stuff out of this anyways. And I was surprised by actually how much fun stuff there was in these sections. Yeah. Right at the beginning, Jake wakes up in the cave and the way that the light hits, it reminds him of a perfect day, which is very similar to what mine would be, Jay. Skipping school, spend the entire day on the sofa, reading books and watching game shows on TV and then napping the afternoon away. Can't get much better than that. Nope. That does sound like a pretty perfect day. 
I thought it was kind of fun to spot the anachronistic child's play reference yeah. in here. There's no way Eddie could have ever seen or heard of Chucky because it didn't come out until November 1988. And what year did he get drawn into Roland's World? It was like 77. Yeah, he's 87. He was able to see RoboCop but not Child's Play. That's such an easy thing to check. Yeah. I also really liked Stephen DeShane's curse. May you live long, but not in good health. (laughs) So simple. Yes. (laughs) Denki calls Shimi's teleportation power jaunting. Mm. Reminds me of the short story, The Jaunt and Skeleton Crew, which is about teleportation and fairly horrific and one that has stayed with me. Skeleton Crew is in my top five Stephen King books, I think, from a short story perspective. Yeah, and and that's a great story. Yeah, and it it still freaks me out. So I thought that that was a a neat turn of phrase there. I got a chuckle uh, when Roland opened up a can of fucking peaches. Of course, that's just me adding my own layer of silliness, um, thinking of Deadwood, when Al Swearingen would always lay out a nice nice display of treats for a big town meeting or something, and they would always include some canned fruit. He would yell, somebody open up a can of fucking peaches. <laughs> it was pretty easy to to picture Roland in one of those scenes. Yeah. Susanna is old enough that She's not aware of these fancy lasers that she uses <laughs> to, to make it seem like there's an army coming from the north. And these lasers, which King puts in quotes every time, every time I saw it, I'm like, is Susanna Dr. Evil thinking about <laughs> lasers? Next, there'll be sharks with lasers on their heads. That would have been good to have in this battle. Yes. There is a tahine with a white chicken's head that reminds Jake of Foghorn Leghorn reminded me of the hyper chicken lawyer from Futurama. Everything comes back to Futurama for you and to the Simpsons for me. Yeah. There's a sort of an odd scene where Pimley's housekeeper and houseboy are having a fight right before the battle. Mm. And it turns out they hate each other, which Pimley has no idea of because, of course, they're just his servants and they're to do what he wants. But they both mention... Dobby, which is a sort of house elf that helps around the house as well. Yet another Harry Potter reference that King has slipped into these books. I was simultaneously entertained by the Dobby house elf reference itself, but I felt it was forced because for no particular reason, right? these housework robots were just referred to as house elves. Yep. Why would you call a robot an elf? I don't know. And why would you call it a Dobby? Yep. I don't know. Except that King really likes Harry Potter and he's friends with J.K. Rowling. And all right, I'll just do that. I sort of assumed that like the other robots, that it was a North Central Positronics, quote, Dobby model. That's fair. But he doesn't make that explicit. And again, it's weird that they say house elf, which... Mm-hmm. really draws attention to it and like that does not seem like a, a terminology you would use and the whole dobby the house elf thing turned into a civil rights type of struggle yes. within the harry potter story so i don't know if king was trying to shine some light on that as well like oh look these are these two human servants who hate each other and hate their lives but they work for this other guy in pretty dire circumstances luckily they still have this house elf robot to kick around. <laughs> we like the line that Ted gives us. 
where he thinks nerves were for people who still hadn't entirely made up their minds. That also sounded a little familiar to me, so it left me curious if that was maybe something that Ted had said in parts of Atlantis or something. I, I don't remember, but it was there's just enough vague familiarity with the with this line that seemed like maybe I'd read it somewhere before. It could have been in this book last time I read it. <laughs> so as you mentioned earlier, we're through part two of this book. We're heading to the second half of the last book here. And one of the major accomplishments is done that the beam has been saved. Now it's onward to rescue Stephen King. Roland and Jake are on their way to do that. They've set up a rendezvous with Susanna for when and if they come back. I have a feeling things are going to be sort of nonstop from here out. And we look forward to discussing it in future episodes. So that's going to be it for this episode of Two Guys to the Tark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our contact information is available in the show notes. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. And our Twitter handle is at twoguysdarktower. You can also find us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash twoguysdarktower or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash twoguysdarktower. If you like the show, please rate us on iTunes. Next episode, join us as we cover Book 7 of The Dark Tower, The Dark Tower, Part 3, Chapters 1 through 4. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening. I thought sticking with your original recap would have actually been uh, an interesting choice. Eddie dies. What else is there to recap?